You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. If you are a member, you have played a very significant role even this week in multiplying what is going on around here in another place in the world. We're called as a church to make disciples of all nations. And last week, I got to be a part of a birthday party at Harvest Bible Chapel, Belize. Here's a picture of our team that went to Belize. And uh, Dr. Dan Kletzing, along with Savannah, and Natalie and Dan Parrott, who's from our sister church down in Indianapolis, that's partnered with us really for about three years to get this church off the ground. And part of what you throw into the offering goes toward making stuff like that happen. So thank you for that. Um, And Pastor Enrique that we've been investing in, he is thrilled. He sends his greetings to you and appreciates so much your prayers and support of him. Let me tell you what happened on my way back to Belize. Uh, By the way, open your Bible to Luke chapter 3. As I was getting out of Belize, you you understand this is a Central American country. And how many of you understand like um, Central American time is different than like American time? I'm not like Central time, not like they're on a different time zone. They're just, time is just not that big a deal there, right? Unless the plane is taking off at 1.30 on Sunday, and I need to be on it. So from the time I got there, I am continually reminding Pastor Enrique, now Enrique, I need to catch this plane. It leaves at 1.30, which means I need to be at the airport promptly at 12 o'clock. Can you make sure somebody is there to take me? And it's an hour away. The church is an hour away from the airport. So I'm calculating all this. I need to leave at 11 o'clock. Church starts at 9 o'clock. It'll probably wrap up around 10.30, hugs and kisses, prayers, but I've got to be at the airport at 11, what did I say? 12 12 o'clock. That's what I told him. And so he hooks me up with this great guy. His name is John Joseph Gideon. I thought I can't go wrong with a guy that has three Bible names. Okay. So John Joseph Gideon, he's, and you got to check the equipment. They're actually going to deliver you to the airport there, you know, because it's like, does it have all of its wheels and does it have gas? And and so it looked like a, a worthy vehicle. So they hooked me up with this guy. And so we had a very nice conversation on the way there. On the way to the airport, John Joseph Gideon says, hey, here's my phone number if you ever need to get in touch with me. I'm thinking, I'm probably never going to see you again. But Dan, who was with me in the, in the car, is like, okay, yeah, give me the phone number. So he puts it in his phone. And then he drops us off at the airport. We were only 10 minutes late. So I thought, oh, that's good. That's good. So we rush up to the Delta counter, getting ready to put my confirmation in so I can get my boarding pass. And so I pulled my phone out. At least I was going to pull my phone out. I don't have my phone. I had my phone in the car. So I'm like, okay, I left my phone in John Joseph Gideon's car. I'm like, oh no, I'm going to miss my plane. We've got to be able to get in touch with John Joseph Gideon. How are we going to do that? (gasps) He gave us his phone number. So Dan calls him on his phone and he says, hey, John Joseph Gideon, I think Trent left his cell phone in your car. Do you see it? He looks around. He's like, yeah, it's laying right there on the seat. And so do you know what Dan told John Joseph Gideon to do? He said, repent. 
Why did he say repent? Because the definition of the word repent means turn around. Come back to where we are. That's what we're going to talk about here this morning. Luke chapter 3 is all about repentance. Let me give you the big idea of the message here this morning. Here it is. The pathway of salvation is paved with repentance. No repentance, no salvation. Salvation produces repentance. Repentance is required for salvation. And we're going to see that here. Let me give a definition of repentance right here. Repentance is a change of mind which leads to a change of direction. Here's the story of everybody in this room. You are born into this world heading in the wrong direction. You are heading towards sin and heading towards self every day, every minute of every day. You take another step away from God and towards sin and towards self. There is a moment in our lives when God calls you and says what I said to John Joseph Gideon, repent, turn around, stop going that direction and come back to where I am. My question to you this morning is, have you heard the call of God to repent? And have you obeyed God's voice in turning from sin and self to a direction toward God? Now, if you have said yes to God's call to repent, it begins a lifetime of repentance. We don't just hear it one time. Every time we hear the Word of God, every time we hear the Spirit of God, we are called back to repentance. And this is the story that we pick up here in Luke chapter 3, and we're going to be introduced to a guy named John the Baptist. How many of you have heard of this guy named John the Baptist? How many of you get a little afraid of people that call themselves Baptist? Have a little apprehension about people that are Baptist? Now listen, I am quite sure that John was non-denominational, okay? We just use the word Baptist because of what he did. He was John the Baptizer, okay? So let's find out about this. Here in Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Wait, who cares? <laughs> Well, listen, here's one of the reasons why you should care about all those names. First of all, if somebody was just sitting down making up fairy tale stories and myths and legends about a guy named Jesus, they wouldn't have gone to the trouble to place it in a historical context. Everything we know about Jesus can be verified through data about where he lived, how he lived, and among whom he lived. Let me tell you the one thing that all of these guys had in common. Did you, did you pick up all the names? We got Caesar, Pilate, Herod, Philip, Lysanias, Annas, Caiaphas. Let me tell you what's, what they all have in common. They, they were all rotten. They were rascals. They, they were wicked, evil men that conspired together to oppress God's 
people. And Luke wanted us to know, um, hard times. People of God were in hard times. Everybody was looking for a Savior. Most people were looking for a political Savior. And so I don't know who you're looking to for a political Savior. You could go down the list of uh, scoundrels in political positions and say, boy, we need a political Savior. Interestingly, God did not send them a political Savior because their problems were political. All of their political problems were rooted in spiritual problems. It wasn't the politicians that needed to repent. It was the people who needed to repent. If you would repent, God would take care of all of your political problems is what he's saying. So the story picks up here in verse 2. And so into that context, Annas and Caiaphas, those were religious guys. And then it says, here's what happened. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. The word of God came. Mark this down. Genuine repentance starts with the word of God. God in His grace chooses to speak to people who are moving away from Him. As an act of grace, He lovingly sends a word to these people who were caught up in sin. And He does it through this guy named John. Now, it had been 400 years since a word from God had come through a prophet. John was the last in a string of prophets that we read about in the Old Testament. Guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Obadiah and Nahum. He's my favorite. And you got this list of, of prophets. And the one thing that's consistent about the prophets, they are always preaching repentance. And so here comes John and he's preaching the same Message. After 400 years, God graciously begins a conversation that starts with the word repent, come back, turn around. And that message comes very symbolically through something called baptism. Verse 3, and he, John, went into all the region around Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance. There's our word. It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Do you see the word baptism there? It's an interesting word. What it means is immerse, plunge, saturate, engulf. And so, it was a water baptism, but it had very specific meaning. It was, it was designed to communicate a message. Now, John's baptism was in water. He would go down into the water. He would call people to repent and demonstrate their repentance through this act of baptism. And that, that was very symbolic. Obviously, the water had some symbolism. Throughout the Old Testament, there were all kinds of people in water. There were a lot of washing, ceremonial washings, because people... People sensed we are spiritually unclean and we need a spiritual washing, a spiritual cleansing. So people would go through all kinds of different washings. And I'm sure that was part of the message that was communicated here is people that are in sin, when they repent, it's like a washing. But it had even more significance than that. 
Um, if you remember back, there was this, this moment in Jewish history that was very important. They were slaves in Egypt, being oppressed in Egypt. And God sets them free. The, sets them free. The second book in our Bible is called Exodus. They had an exit from slavery in Egypt. God brought them, and when He brought them out of slavery in Egypt, the final decisive moment of their deliverance happened through water. God brought them through the Red Sea. And so baptism, I think, probably pointed some, some way in order to be delivered, to be set free, to be cleansed, you have to go through the water. And we know that this word picture continues to develop in the New Testament. We know how the story ends, right? Eventually Jesus comes and He lives, He dies, and He is buried under earth, and He is resurrected, and baptism took on the significance of a water burial. So somebody that presented themselves for baptism, for you to present yourself for baptism is saying, I am identifying with that guy named Jesus who was buried and resurrected. And just like Jesus, I am identifying with Jesus, I am experiencing a water baptism and I am being resurrected. Now, all kinds of symbolism and significance, very important, powerful truth related to baptism. Now, let me say this. Have you been baptized? Um, if you have not been baptized, you have not professed your repentance and your trust in this personal Savior, Jesus. That is the way that all genuine believers who have repented of sin express or profess, communicate to the world. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Now some of you were baptized against your will. Eight days old, three months old, a year old, and you didn't have any choice. You had some loving parents that wanted you to know God, and the best that they knew is this was part of the process. And really what the New Testament teaches is, is baptism is for those who have already, as an act of their will, repented of sin and turned back to God in salvation. If you've not been baptized on the right side of your salvation, you need to be baptized. It's one of the requirements for church membership around here is that you have made a profession of faith and demonstrated that through the act of believers' baptism. It's not that you're baptized again if you were baptized as a little baby. It just means that genuinely as a believer for the first time, you are baptized. Now, that, that wasn't all that was caught up here in John's baptism because that had yet to develop through the New Testament. But that's what we understand when we see the word baptism. And he says, that this baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. Now, it's not that the baptism forgives the sin. We know that only the atoning blood of Christ can forgive sin. Water can't cleanse sin. Only the blood of Jesus cleanses sin. The baptism points to the one who does forgive sin. And it points to the act of repentance from sin. We keep using this word sin. Are you familiar with the term? Now, let's talk about sin here for a few minutes. If you don't have a continual conscious awareness that you are a sinner who by nature 
commits sins. It is probably because you do not have a continual conscious awareness of the Word of God. The law of God has been communicated through the Word of God. God is a law giver. We are law breakers. If you do not have a continual conscious awareness that you are a lawbreaker, it is probably because this culture has tried to do everything it can to try to erase your memory that God is a lawgiver. If you remove the consciousness of the Word of God from your mind, you remove the consciousness of sin from your mind, which removes your need of forgiveness. As Christians, we live with a continual conscious awareness. We need forgiveness because we are lawbreakers of our lawgiver. And so the crowds that were coming had this awareness of the law of God. They were lawbreakers. They needed forgiveness of sin. Have you experienced forgiveness of sin? No matter what you've done, no matter where you've screwed up. God says there is a way to be forgiven through your repentance. If you would just simply stop, turn around, stop ignoring the law of God and face Him, it is an act of faith that demonstrates I am starting a lifestyle of repentance. So repentance starts with the Word of God. Secondly, genuine repentance reconstructs a sinful heart. Beginning in verse 4, we read this. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. Pause. That's a hyperlink. You click on the hyperlink, it takes you back into the Old Testament. We have a book in the Old Testament called Isaiah. In chapter 40 of Isaiah, verses 3 through 5, we read these words. Luke is quoting from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Now, in my Bible, the words are kind of bracketed. They're kind of, in your did they do that for you in your Bible? Yeah. It kind of shows you. These are words that were already found earlier in our Bible. And it gives us this very poetic picture of the heart of someone who needs to repent. Notice it says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Well, isn't that interesting? Here we have John, who is a voice, crying in the wilderness. And yet, 700 years before John showed up, it was predicted there would be a voice crying in the wilderness. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. And here's what that voice says. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. So in a very real sense, Jesus was about to show up on the scene. And it was John's job to prepare the way, to remove the obstacles so that everyone that Jesus was coming to meet could meet Him without hindrance. Now, just as real as Jesus physically and historically coming to the nation of Israel, this morning, Jesus is coming to every heart. He wants to meet with you. He wants to meet with you, every one of you, no matter who you are, whether you've ever met with him again. Jesus is coming. And it is the job of a church, of a preacher, to prepare the way. And if you know He's coming, it's your job to prepare your heart to receive Him. 
And so he gives us this fourfold analogy of the human heart. Notice what it says. It says, first of all, if we're going to prepare the way, he says, every valley shall be filled, every mountain shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So if you want to see the salvation of God, if you want to have an encounter with Jesus, these four things need to happen. First of all, you have to go into the valleys of your heart. What is he saying? He's saying you have to get beyond the surface level of just your, your behavioral problems. You have to go to the sin, underneath the sin, underneath the sin, underneath the sin, to the depths of your depravity. What he's saying is, your heart is cracked and broken. It has caves and caverns down in it. And until you go to the depths of who you are and bring all that up, you, you, you won't get to the levels of repentance that are needed. Secondly, he describes your heart as a mountain. These high places, what, what's that talking about? Well, it's talking about these exalted opinions we have of ourselves. We elevate ourselves above other people. We think we're better than others. We, we think we're better than we know we really are. And we deceive ourselves into these exalted opinions of ourselves. And he's like, if you want to meet Jesus, uh, your pride is going to have to be laid in the dust. You're going to have to bring all the mountain of pride down. Third analogy, he talks about these crooked ways. And this is where it gets hard to admit, right? What is he saying? He's saying your heart's twisted. He's like, you've taken all these detours. You've gotten off the straight and narrow. You're wandering out here, playing with stuff outside the boundaries. And you've got to bring that heart back to the truth. To center. And then the fourth thing he says, there's these rough places that, that need to be made smooth. Anybody had a rough life? Anybody had a rough week? Anybody have a rough week today? I mean, it's, it's rough, right? And, and, and here's what a lot of people do, and this is what causes them to miss Jesus. They make themselves into a victim. And they think that every pothole and every crack, every rough thing that's ever happened to them is somebody else's fault. They excuse their sin, they rationalize their sin, they justify their sin, they blame others for their sin, and they make themselves into a victim. If you play the victim card, you will miss Jesus until you take personal responsibility for your own life. Now listen, that's not to say there aren't some people in here that have been treated roughly. That is true of almost every person in this room. Your past may explain your problem, but it doesn't excuse your problem. You have to take personal responsibility if you want to meet Jesus. So Jesus says, you got to go to the valleys of your heart. You got to lift it up. You got to take the mountain of pride. You got to smash it. You got to clear out. You got to make it straight. You got to remove every obstacle if you want to meet Jesus through the pathway of repentance. Number three, genuine repentance produces supernatural change. Supernatural change. You can't do this on your own. Even the repentance is a gift from God. Notice it here in verse 7. 
He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to baptize him, You brood of vipers! John was not a real seeker-sensitive preacher, okay? Um, he looked at the crowd, and he's like, All right, you remind me of a bunch of snakes. Now, how many of you are actually, like, uncomfortable right now because of the picture I put on the screen? It's like, take that down. That I don't want to be around that kind of thing. Well, here's the thing. As much as you resist that, that's how much God resists sinners. What is the picture? John could have used any analogy he wanted to, but like a good preacher, he found the perfect word picture to describe our hearts. We're poisonous, venomous, and we bite and devour people that we perceive as threats, and we inject poison into their lives, damaging and destroying relationships, damaging and destroying our relationship with God. By the way, does anybody remember the first time a snake was used in the Bible? Yeah, you're, you're just like that serpent, Satan. Matter of fact, he's your father. And that's what's in your heart. That's, that's the analogy he's trying to tell these people. So he says, you're a, bunch of, you're a bunch of snakes, you're a brood of vipers. And then he goes on, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Hey, if, if you can name the person, you might just put somebody's name down there. Who, who was it for you that told you that your sin is going to be held accountable before God and He's not happy about your sin and there's wrath coming unless you repent. And so somebody had told them this. Skip down here to verse 9. There were three kinds of people in the crowd. The first type is identified in verse 10. He says, And the crowds ask Him, What then shall we do? So, it's like, okay, so I'm hearing you tell me I need to repent, but can you be a little more specific? Can you give me something very specific I need to do that would show my repentance? So the crowds ask him this question, and he gets very specific with them in verse 11. And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. So he puts his finger on their appetites for clothing and food. Hang on, here's a second question that comes to him in verse 12. This group is known as the tax collectors. How many of you would agree that every tax collector needs to repent right now? Anybody agree with me on that? Yeah, all tax collectors. Now, we're all sinners, but then some are some are tax collectors. I mean, we're all sinners, but then you got a group that's even lower than that. Those are tax collectors. That's the way they felt about the tax collectors. Verse 12 says, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. I think it's interesting he didn't tell them, stop collecting taxes. No, you, you, we need to pay our taxes. Just don't, just don't extort more money from them than what is appropriate. The third group is identified in verse 14. This group is known as the soldiers. Who were the soldiers? These were Roman soldiers. These were their enemies. These were the people that were oppressing them. And they showed up to hear the message of repentance. This is good news. And the soldiers asked him, what shall we do? 
And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Now, we would expect him to say, Stop being a soldier. You're fighting for the wrong team. That's not what he says. He says, You can be a good soldier. But stop extorting people's money and abusing your power and lording it over them. Now, I want you to notice three groups, they ask the same question, what shall we do? What shall we do? What shall we do? And John puts his finger on the sin behind the sin behind the sin behind the sin, goes to the very depths of the heart, and he identifies the root of our sin. He says, you have a love for money and you abuse your power. And that will send you to hell. Why? Because money and power promise things that only God can provide. Security and significance. But that's what we do. We, we don't want God to provide security and significance. We want to control that. And we want to control other people. So we climb over people. And we exert our power over people. We exert our influence over people. And then we try to hoard and gain as much stuff as we can. Interestingly, it is the exact opposite of the prosperity gospel that is ruining so many churches and preachers in our country and in Belize and in Liberia, places where we are trying to have influence to preach a gospel of repentance which calls on people to release their grip on money and power where other people are saying, if you will come to God, He'll make you happy, healthy, and wealthy and give you more money and more power. That's the opposite of what John's message was. Preachers that I love, churches that I know are being devastated by this kind of false theology. By God's grace, not here. We serve God. God does not exist to serve us. And a life of repentance turns its back on every substitute for Jesus and turns its face toward the only one who can provide real security and real significance. That was the message John preached, and that is what repentance involves. But then he says this. Skip back up to verse 8. Notice he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. A fruit is something that is supernaturally generated. You can't manufacture fruit. If anybody does try to manufacture some fruit, I wouldn't buy that. Okay? Um, you need to look for the real thing. And what John is saying here, listen, you can go through the waters of baptism. You can raise a hand, pray a prayer. You can preach a message. That is not the evidence of your repentance. Repentance produces a lifestyle change that verifies what you say you have done in repenting. What kinds of fruits are there? He, he goes on and he lists them there. Um, he says in verse 8, keeping in, uh, keeping, uh, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. 
And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. What they're saying is we don't need to repent. We, we were born into the family. That's a mistake that a lot of Christians make. They think that because their parents were Christians, they're Christians. No, everyone needs their own experience of repentance with the Lord, where you hear His voice and respond to His call. So he says, don't give me any of that stuff about Abraham being your father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. And then he gives them a warning in verse 9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Fire is serious business. So there better be some evidence of your repentance or you should fear being thrown into the fire. What are these fruits of repentance? Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is talking about the difference between genuine repentance and counterfeit repentance. And he draws the distinction, two categories. He says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Yes, good. There is a genuine change, a genuine turning. When you turn away from sin and self and turn back to God, that's going to end up in salvation and life without regret, he says. But there's a second kind of repentance. It's a counterfeit repentance. And he calls it worldly grief. It only produces death. You come to church, some preacher gets in your face, you feel really bad about the way you've lived, you cry a few tears, you say, I'll never do it again, and you walk out of here and you live exactly the way you lived before you walked in. Congratulations, you've experienced worldly grief. But there was no change. Let me show you what change looks like when you experience genuine repentance. He says this, For see what eagerness this godly grief has produced in you. Also, what eagerness to clear yourselves and indignation, a hatred for sin, the things you once loved you now hate, and the things you once hate you now love. And fear, a new fear of God. God, I don't want to ever displease you. I don't want to ever do anything that robs you of glory. I fear you too much. What longing, a new longing for holiness and purity. What zeal, a new passion to throw your life into becoming a follower of Jesus. What punishment, not so much that you punish yourself, but you're so disappointed in the way that you've lived your life without Jesus, but you've accepted the fact that he's taken your punishment for you on the cross. And so he says, when you've done that, at every point you prove yourself innocent in the matter. It's like, you're just not even the same person you were. I, you don't, I, how many of you have, have you seen somebody repent? It's like, I, I, there's, there's, I don't even know who this person is anymore. Better question, is anybody able to say that about you? If not, maybe it's because you haven't ever genuinely repented. first fruit of repentance is the fact that you have experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Not just that you just got caught in your sin, not that somebody exposed some indiscretion in your life, 
but that the Holy Spirit internally made you so uncomfortable in the direction that you were headed, you couldn't live that way anymore. And God, as an act of His grace, chose to stop you in your tracks and turn you around. Holy Spirit conviction is the first step. It's the first fruit of repentance. Secondly is godly grief. Not just that you feel bad, but that you felt so bad you stopped, you quit, or you started doing something that God wanted you to do. This, this heaviness of soul, the things that you once laughed at, you now weep over. That's a godly grief. And then confession that it begins to make its way from your mind to your heart and that it eventually ends up in your mouth to where you have to speak of your wrongdoing. First of all, to God vertically and say, God, I have sinned. And the reason I have sinned is because I am a sinner who's turned my back on you. I was going in the wrong direction. It wasn't mistakes and flaws and characteristics. It was sin. And I choose in this moment to call my sin what you have called my sin. Not to excuse it, not to justify it, not to blame somebody else, but to say, God, you are right. What you have said about my sin is exactly what I'm gonna say about my sin. And then to speak that confession not only to God, but whoever it was you sinned against. To go to somebody relationally and say, my selfishness has damaged you. My lying, I need to replace with the truth. And that is genuine confession. And don't be surprised when somebody looks and is like, yeah, you are a sinner. Because I saw it, I saw it before you saw it. Genuine confession agrees with the person that's called you a sinner. And then not only confession, but then restitution. You go back and take responsibility for the damage that your sin has caused and you f do everything you can to try to fix it. There's some things that can't be fixed, but you do everything you can to clear your name. If you've, if you've stolen something, take it back. If you've lied, replace it with the truth. If there's been a power grab, you release the power. If you push somebody down, you raise them back up. If you've slandered them, you go clear their name over and over and over. Then we get to step five. Now, let me just say before I reveal this, some people, that repent, some, some people think that repentance starts with the fifth step. You can't get to the fifth step until you practice the first four. Here's the fifth step reconciliation. I mean, there's a lot of people that are like, man, I really like, I'm really sad about the loss of the relationship. And I, I'm really sad that you're now telling everybody all my sin. Can we just like start getting along? Can we just, can we just like make peace? Um, before we make peace, why don't we see if maybe God's convicted you of the sin? Have you grieved over this? Have you confessed it as sin? Have you tried to repair the damage? And ch is there any change whatsoever? Maybe if you change, you actually repent and we see evidence of consistent behavior over time, then maybe we can talk about me trusting you enough to actually have a relationship with you without you damaging me again. 
repent. And we might be able to reconcile the relationship. And then finally, there's freedom. You can live your life with no regret. Now listen, that happens in a moment of salvation, but that continues throughout a life that has been saved. That is the posture, that's the attitude, that is the daily cycle we go through as Christians as the Holy Spirit continues to convict, continues to refine. Those are the fruits of genuine repentance. And then finally, genuine repentance validates the messenger. Look here in verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming and the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Underline those words, not worthy. You know what validated John's message? He was actually a continual, constant repenter. We see it right there. There is an attitude of humility. In the moment the crowds were about to exalt him to the place of power and influence, do you know what he did? I'm not going there. I'm not going to take the position that rightfully belongs to Christ. I'm not here to exalt myself. I'm here to exalt Christ. He takes a low position. Sandals are way down at the bottom. He's like, that's where I belong. That's an attitude of humility that actually validates the message of repentance. You see, here's the tragedy. The more familiar you are with the message of repentance the more you are tempted to think that message is for somebody else. And for those of us that are assigned by God to preach this message, we have to continually remind ourselves nobody needs to repent more than the messenger. And whenever you find a messenger that has lost the sense that he is not worthy of preaching the message. He is not worthy to be preaching the message. So, humility is, a, is what validates the message. And then boldness. Notice how bold this guy is. Look in verse, uh, at the end of verse 16, he says, He, Jesus who's coming, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So, we got all these symbols. We got water. John's like, all I got is water. Jesus is coming. He's got two things I can't give you. Number one, the Holy Spirit. So this is what he's saying. When Jesus comes, he's going to engulf you in the Holy Spirit if you repent. If you repent, you're engulfed in the Holy Spirit. What a gift. God's given us the helper to fill our lives, to give us power to do things we would otherwise not be able to do. But if you will not repent, there's only one other option. Fire. If you repent, you're engulfed in the Holy Spirit. If you refuse, you will be engulfed in fire. It's a picture of eternal judgment, separated from God forever in the flames of hell. Your choice repent or refuse.
spirit, or fire. What boldness. How could he get away with that? Here's the thing. The more convinced you are of the message of repentance, the more courage you'll have to share it. He's like, I can't even believe you're telling me these things. You're just like punching me in the face. You expect me to come back and listen to this? Yes, I love you so much. I am unwilling to preach to you a message that will not save you. If you want to be saved, you must repent. And here's the final thing. Obedience. Notice here in um, verse 19. But Herod, remember him, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, for all the evil things that Herod had done. This is a whole other Jerry Springer show. We don't even have to get into time to, but he married his brother's sister, and it was just a mess. Verse 20, he didn't like being told, you can't do that. So in verse 20, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison and eventually beheaded him. You see, the more hostile the culture is toward the message of repentance, the more costly it is to preach it. Are you willing to embrace and then distribute this message even if it brings persecution? Now listen, this is a safe environment in here. Nobody's going nobody's to put us in prison for preaching this yet. Here's the thing. Time's running out. Have you repented of sin? Have you heard the voice of God, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to tell you what you are doing is not right? God is a lawgiver. I am a lawbreaker. I need forgiveness of sin. The only path to forgiveness is repentance. And every time you hear that voice, we have to choose to repent. Not just with God, not just with worldly sorrow, but with godly sorrow. That's what I want us to do. Let's stand together, heads bowed, eyes closed. Nobody moving around. We're going to be out of here in about 60 seconds. But listen, this is a moment for people to repent. Maybe you need to repent and be baptized. Maybe you've never had that initial moment where you turned from sin and self and turned and your direction changed? Do you have fruits of repentance? Is anybody saying about you, you're different. I can't believe what a different person you are. If that's never happened, let this be the day that you do that. In your heart right now, why don't you just confess, God, I agree with you. You're the lawgiver. I'm the lawbreaker. I need forgiveness. I repent. Turn back to you. just a few weeks on February the 10th we're going to have a baptism service here and there are maybe dozens of you that need to be baptized on that day as an evidence that you have turned your back on sin and your direction has changed toward God if you need to be baptized, you can come to one of the pastors here at the end of the service. If you need prayer, if you need to be saved, if you have questions, our pastors, our elders, their wives, are, they're here to minister to you in any way. Don't rush out of here. If you need to spend some time with God, some of you this afternoon need to get on your face in, a, in an extended period of repentance. Some of you need to get on the phone and make relationships right, make restitution. 
Lord, thank you for your spirit that convicts. Thank you for the grace to call, even the gift of repentance that enables us to head back to you. God, would you do in every heart what I'm unable to do? Call your people back to repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're not yet a member of our church, five o'clock tonight, I'll be here for Making Harvest My Home. If you need to be baptized, come to one of the pastors. You can also go online and let us know that you want to be baptized. We'll see you next week. You're loved.